Broadcasting live from Funky Toy Offices, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Zeba, and I'm joined by my AI dolls, Louisa and Taya. And this is our last episode covering doll horror. And we're talking about the 2023 sci-fi horror Megan, directed by Gerard Johnstone. If you would like to hear one more bonus episode on this theme, then head over to our Patreon and pledge. Mila's off sick this episode, but she'll be back soon. Before we get into the film, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. In this film, eight-year-old Katie becomes orphaned and goes to live with her aunt Gemma, who works for a techie toy company. Gemma designs a lifelike AI doll prototype named Megan, who she decides to give to her niece as a way to prove to her boss that families will find the doll useful. Another benefit of Megan is that she acts as another caregiver so that Gemma, who is struggling to connect with her niece, is able to outsource the labor of caring for her so that she can continue on with her work. Megan and Katie develop a very strong bond and it becomes apparent that Megan will do anything to protect Katie from physical or emotional harm, even kill. Megan, turn off. Well, hold on a second. I thought we were having a conversation. You say nothing is wrong. And yet all the moisture has drained from your eyes and mouth into other parts of your body. There's something you want to ask me, isn't there? Megan, did you do something wrong? Well, in order to answer that question, you need to define the parameters. Did you hurt someone? God, I hope not. Because if I did, we'd both be in a lot of trouble. I remember that back in the day, the toys that we had that were sold on TV with the 1-800 number felt very technologically advanced for the time. Like that was the whole thing of toys in the early 2000s is there was like robot dogs and like Tamagotchis. I don't know, everything changed color and had a screen and like talk back to you. I miss that shit. Do kids even play with toys anymore? I used to have a techno. I had an amazing alley. I really wanted an American Girl doll, but for some reason, that's not what I got. Oh, I had an American Girl doll. I had Josefina. She was good. I wanted an American Girl doll, but the only black one was a slave, and my mom was not really comfortable. That is why I did not have that one. I knew about them, but I don't know if I know if I knew about the black one. Yeah, she was a slave. They have like a, a book where they, she was like literally eating bugs and stuff while she was running away, and they had to leave her dad and her brother. Um, yeah, my mom was like, "This is absolutely not appropriate and it's offensive." I don't think I would have gone down well with my dad. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't have an American Girl doll. I had an Amazing Alley, and that was kind of creepy. Like we took the battery out, and it wouldn't stop talking. I did have the the Happy Family dollhouse. Um, this like. Meet Midge, Alan Ryan, new baby makes four. Happy family with room for one more. I'm gonna find that audio clip, but I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It was like a happy family dollhouse, and they all had like talked. It was very fun. Um, they had the family as like a black family or a white family. And if you were anything else, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry for you. You had two choices and that's it. <laughs> what kind of advanced toys did you have, Louisa? Um, you know what? I really liked dolls. I didn't really have any high techie dolls. Like I quite liked them being realistic. So I didn't really like a robotic techie toy, to be honest. I did get like a laptop, you know. And then that's when it was all over. I think I played with my brother's Game Boy, 
but my friend had an easy bake oven and it was like the height of luxury that she had an easy bake oven. So I remember I'd go around to her house to play with her easy bake oven and it tasted delicious. Was it like you got powder from the packs and then I never had one. Is that how it works? We made cookies and I can't remember. And honestly, we probably were eating like raw cookies. The Monstrous Feminine is on Apple Podcasts, so please go leave us a five-star review and a little message. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout-out in our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Chloe RB from the UK, who left us a five-star review and said, Amazing, incredible podcast, exclamation point, exclamation point. Amazing, incredible review. Take Chloe's word for it. We are amazing. Everybody who may be new to listening please head on over to the Apple Podcast app and just rate us five stars. Also, head on over to Spotify and rate us five stars. Nothing less. I will only accept five stars. Due to inflation, five stars are now ten stars. Exactly. Friendly reminder that we are on Patreon for one pound a month. You gain access to our Discord. For three pounds a month, you get to hear a cut discussion from one of our main episodes. For five pounds a month, you get all that plus a bonus episode. So please support us. Any contribution helps. Can I ask a question first off for context? Did y'all watch this in theaters or at home? Because I feel like this is a theater movie. I feel like half of the enjoyment of it for me was I did see it at an 11 a.m. matinee. I imagine a late night viewing would be even better. <laughs> 11 a.m. Y'all, I went to an 11 a.m. matinee and then I went to the diner after with all the people coming back from church. Um, but I feel like, yeah, the the shared camaraderie of seeing it in a theater early on, like before anyone knew much about how the movie would like play out. I feel like that was like half the fun of this. I feel like this movie misled to me what it was going to be. Like, I think this film is just not as funny as, like, the snippets made it seem like it was going to be. I thought this was going to be, like, very camp, very funny. And it reads more like a family drama. It is PG-13 and not rated R. And they I heard that they cut a lot of it to make it PG-13. Um, and some of the parts where, like, it is campy, you can tell they made it for, like, the viral points. I will say, Allison Williams stay getting a check in a, the most random-ass viral horror films. And I love that for her. Is that the one who plays uh, Gemma, the aunt? Yeah. For her, off of Girls, like, I love that her character has now, like, her career thing after Girls has been, like, Though her in a horror movie is like an emotionally unavailable or like complete villain. So for the first like at least 20 minutes of this film, I found it just really difficult because I just imagine I just couldn't stop watching her as the girlfriend and get out. So I was like, you racist bitch. If you know her from Girls, I feel like watching her in horror movies still makes sense. I'm like, that's still Marnie. She's just in a different context. Yeah, I was a bit distracted by that. On the comedy... I kind of agree with you, Ty. I was a little bit underwhelmed. I thought from like what I'd heard about it, I would, that's why I don't like hearing anything, but I couldn't avoid like the memes and shit for this one, Twitter and stuff. So I thought it would be a bit more fun than, than it was. I would still call it quite camp. And I did enjoy that element of it. Like when she just bursts into a ballad of titanium, bizarre to me. And also her little like dance that's gone viral, you know, the little wiggle that she does before she like picks up this like sword 
Um, yeah, I thought like obviously those elements were giving camp and they were amusing to me. But the rest of it was just kind of um like it wasn't really enough of horror. I wish you had been more murderous, like overtly murderous. I want to see the rated R cut. I really do. Also, I'm really confused on why they announced the sequel, but they said it comes out in like 2025 or something. And I was like, what is it going to take you that long to film? Like, it would be better to write off the height. You are not Avatar. You can't do that. I was going to read out some reviews talking about the camp elements so that we could discuss. So Owen Gleiberman for Variety said, Megan almost feels like it could be a cult film, the sort of thriller that generates a small but devoted following and maybe a sequel or two. You don't have to take the movie seriously to enjoy it as a high-kitch cautionary tale for an age when technology, especially for kids, is becoming the new companionship. I highlighted the phrase cult. It does feel like it might be a little bit in that variety. And I highlighted the phrase high-kitch. I think it was kind of that as well. I was going to say... Yes, Megan 2 should ride off the coattails of Megan 1, certainly. I feel like this movie was trying to do what Malignant did naturally. Interesting you say that because this is the same writer as Malignant, the Kayla Cooper. I did know that. And I listen, I'm a follower of James Wan's work. Whatever he puts out, I will see it because I know I'm going to be hee-hee-ha-hawing, doubled over, or genuinely scared. Like, I'm a fan of the Insidious franchise, but he is known and Bloomhouse Productions in general are known to put out these movies that like are accidentally camp and get a cult following because of it. Like I saw Insidious before anybody knew it was about, before any of the memes were out. I think I watched it like the very first weekend it came out and I was like bowled over surprised by how ridiculous it was. And I think Malignant is funny to a lot of people. I think it's funny. Um, It's not supposed to be though, which is like part of what makes it so funny. Whereas this is just like, okay, yeah, that's the nature of like trying to create like a viral campaign, a viral film. I get it. It doesn't mean that I didn't have fun and didn't enjoy myself, but it's just sort of like, it takes away a little bit of the like culty, campy nature of it for you to like be leaning into that so heavily on purpose. I actually liked this movie because I feel like it was more serious than I expected. I think the interesting thing about this film is that it kind of deals with this fear of motherhood but also with processing grief we have like Gemma processing the grief of her sibling dying but also this fear of motherhood and what it would mean to her career what it means to her life changing and she also just doesn't know how to be there emotionally as a mother to a child because she didn't really plan on having kids and so I think Megan kind of is representative to what a lot of technology is to kids nowadays. Like there are a lot of parents, not to parent shame, who do supplement parenting with giving their kids an iPad or some technology because it can entertain them for for you. You can turn on Paw Patrol or whatever for five hours and the kid will be in front of the TV and you can finally get some work done. And so I think it was very relatable and kind of Uh, an underlying fear that maybe a lot of working parents may have or people who are new parents what is the line between allowing technology to help you with rearing your child and then being scared of what that technology can do and how it can change your child's way of thinking how it can interrupt your bond how it can stunt your ability to parent or connect with the kid and like how they can also become obsessed with whatever that thing is and in this case it was Megan and like 
she's in a very vulnerable place to where she was going to naturally attach herself to whatever caregiver came because she doesn't have parents anymore. And that being a doll who's like the same age as her and presenting the same way, it seems quite harmless. Kind of is a way that like, I mean, cartoons and kid-friendly content all seems very harmless, but at the end of the day, everything does have an underlying message and you don't really know what it is if you're not also watching it with your kid. So it's hard to like know what's completely safe or what you agree with because maybe your kid is watching some cartoon and it's actually like police are the best people in the world or something like, and that's not something that you yourself believe. It's really hard to like control the things that your kid is picking up on with technology in general. And also with grief, because Katie is grieving, Gemma's grieving in a very different way in which she's isolating herself. And Katie is grieving in a way where she's completely imprinted upon Megan and uses her as her source of every single thing. And once Gemma has not made any attempt, once she's already latched onto Megan, it's very hard for Gemma to get into that space because Katie is so guarded because she doesn't trust that people won't leave her. And also the grief that she has to deal with again when Megan is taken away from her because Gemma starts being fearful of their connection is also a whole nother layer. So I think it was interesting how it showed like childhood grief, this fear of being a parent, this like grieving of a sibling that Gemma's kind of doing, but like not explicitly into like middle through the movie. Um, and, a, and a lens that's like kind of camp and kind of comedic at times. I think it was a, overall a pretty solid and harmless movie. I agree. I want to see this rated R version because maybe there are like some more campy kills as well. Because I feel like when she goes on the hallway, that is like the best part of it. Yeah, I think most of what they said they cut was like, yeah, kill scenes. Which is kind of what I think it needed a bit more as as like a slasher type. Um, It was, yeah, you're right. Taya was like kind of more of a family drama for like most of the film. I kind of think that it, it is a bit like suffering from genre confusion, which maybe is why it's difficult to see as camp because I'm like, it's not really given enough of anything. Picking up on the motherhood point, you've given quite a sympathetic reading of it. But I want to talk about a reviewer, Alison Wilmore from Vulture, who A, unrelated, but called Megan an Olsen-faced murder machine, which I found amusing. And B... On Motherhood, Alison Wilmore said that Gemma, with her utter, I'm reading here, utter inability to wrap her head around what it means to care for another person, is in her own way just as camp a creation. And I was like confused by labeling her as camp in that way, unless you're kind of going with what Ty is touching on, which is like a satirization of like everything to do with like screen time and motherhood in general. In that way, it's like a satire, but I don't know if I'd use the word camp. But anyway, she goes on, and I think you might say, if we're giving this a Barbara Creed reading, that Gemma in this reading is a little bit of a monstrous mother. Other actors might play Gemma as chilly or tightly wound, someone cruising for a career girl comeuppance. But Williams frames the character's self-interest as natural and comfortable, the behavior of someone who intentionally chose to pursue her calling and who seems to like her dabblings on Tinder and her house full of spotless furniture, rather than a cautionary tale about the perils of prioritizing the personal over the workplace. Megan plays as something sillier and stranger, a millennial fable about a woman trying to outsource the maternal nurturing that doesn't come naturally to her to an android helper who's in the middle of her own worrying calculations about the meaning of existence. When Gemma lays out some of the potential benefits of her creation to avaricious boss, 
In a voiceover, she atones earnestly about how Megan could take over the tedious aspects of parenting, quote, so you can spend more time on the things that matter, end quote. And as she says this, we see her settle in cozily with her laptop, end whole quote. So it's kind of reading quite a harsh view of her, seeing as her as like in, unable to care. And to be fair, not that I think working people or like women who don't want to be parents are bad, but I will say she was she was highly insensitive. Like the thing she was like she just straight up left her niece for like hours after her niece has like suffered this terrible trauma, and she's like gotta work. I was about to say it's not just a child; it's a grieving child who's been through like a terrible, terrible trauma. Which I don't honestly, I don't think the average person is equipped to deal with that. Like if you are not a trained counselor or a social worker, if you're just like the next of kin, but she was like extra not equipped. Like she already was not a very nurturing type of person in the first place, but she was like, not mean, but like she inconsiderate maybe is the word. I don't know. Like no one is equipped for that scenario. You're absolutely right. Like language falls short, but I think like even like anyone would think, okay, I've got to spend time. Like, let's take her on a fun day out. At least try. She was just like, don't touch these display toys. And like, and she like seemed to care. Like, I'm not saying she doesn't care, but she was not at all able to communicate that in a way. So I do think this harsh reading of that motherhood is right. So that kind of conversation of like Gemma, not a monstrous motherhood in a creed sense, I guess, but in that stilted, like, what does motherhood mean? And the fact that Megan then comes in and you could argue that Megan is more of a monstrous mother, right? So I think like that, like Gemma's stilted or failure with motherhood breeds this monstrous mother creation in the form of Megan. I think that's kind of interesting. But Gemma definitely was not equipped for this sort of scenario. And while I think her character was very insensitive and at times it was annoying to watch because as a viewer, you're like, what is she doing? I also think like if you're in your 30s and you have not had a kid and you don't really seem to have any explicit desire to have one and you're thrust into a parental role after a tragedy has also happened to you and you're also in like this space of wanting to advance your career and in this creation space, I think in her mind she felt like thinking that Katie could like tuck away her emotions in the same way that she could to like make this work. Because she's like, neither of us really want to be here. Neither of us really know how to do this. Like, let's make the best of it and keep our space. And she went about it in a very not great way. But also, I think when you're a first time parent or even a parent in general, after you've had multiple kids, like you just are bound to make mistakes. And there are things that you just don't know how to do. I mean, there are things that you're bound to not be able to deal with. And so in her mind, she doesn't really notice that like, there's anything wrong with testing her prototype and also sort of outsourcing parenting because she's not that warm. She's not that, she doesn't really know how to be a parent to Megan until she's like, oh, Megan is like obsessed with her and this is a problem. Like she's hurting people. I don't really know how to deal with this. I'm not equipped to deal with this machine that I created because I didn't really think about it. And I also am not equipped to separate her from Megan because she's already been through so much. And so then she starts having to come through it from a more like soft and parental perspective of like, okay, we have to process this grief together and it's okay for you to feel because I feel things as well, but Megan isn't good for you. I thought that angle was a lot more realistic of her originally just kind of like writing it off as being like, okay, well, the bill's still got to get paid because I don't really think 
people have enough free time to parent under capitalism. Please say it again. It's this to me, like the iPad children are a symptom of this issue, right? Like I feel like people are blaming technology, but like I had two working parents for the most part, like my dad stayed at home half the time or he would like work part time or whatever. But like, I think this is true. A lot of kids like born from like 80s into like 90s is like I was plopped in front of the TV. Like I wasn't an iPad kid. I didn't have access to the internet. The internet's much more dangerous, I think. But like, yeah, I had outdoor activities. Yeah, I had like things I was signed up for. But those things like cost money. Childcare costs money. Daycare costs money. Babysitters cost money. So like, I totally understand why I was like plopped in front of the TV at a really young age because like everyone had to work and if they weren't working, they had to like run errands or clean the house or do the laundry. And it's just like not sustainable to have like a two parent household where everybody's working 40 hours plus a week. Like it just doesn't make any fucking sense. And I feel like we're like not redirecting the issue, which is like, how do we create systems for community care? Like how do we create systems where it's not like, two people taking care of a child. Two people is not enough. It's never been enough. And I feel like I understand why somebody would like lean on even one person who has full time, like a nanny needs to be paid a living wage, if not like more, certainly more than what we consider a living wage. So it's just like, yeah, if there was a robot, an AI, a thing that could like take care of a task, we have things to take care of tasks, technologies that we have, we're going to have like self-driving cars and fucking like people pick up our groceries for us and like drive us places. Like it is the natural progression of things, but like children and their development cannot be subject to like automation the way that everything else is. It's annoying that it's almost like I, I feel like this horror film either should have been camp and ridiculous or actually should have been quite serious because I actually feel like there's something really in that as like a horror topic in the sense of like children who are subjected to too much like internet exposure or like in this case AI and, and stuff like that because like I just think it's so interesting like the most interesting parts about this film is when like Katie like has a breakdown is like throwing things at the therapist because she can't tell the difference and she can't understand what the difference between like the doll and like real people humans and the doll and I think like that was a really interesting topic and I think like an uncanny valley situation interacting with AI interacting with a child is an interesting premise for like a lot of horror and the fact the doll kind of resembled her as well which wasn't really made a thing but I thought they, that kind of interpolation and, and and stuff and interaction was like a really fruitful topic for horror but I don't really think they did it they did it justice because it was like through this kind of campy medium and I kind of wish it kind of was either more serious and really did that or camp ridiculous kind of vibe Megan was her baby more than the real baby was I think I just think that they verged a little bit on like, not entirely, but a little bit on like a mad scientist thing of like, which is she the mother to? Is it Megan or is it, or is it Katie? And her ethics in regard to the AI was already questionable. Like I was already child aside. She was doing, rushing the work in a way that is like dangerous, right? Regardless of if this thing is murderous, you are putting it in charge of like children's upbringing. So maybe run a few more tests before you put that shit on the market. I wanted them to commit to something a bit more with her character. And it was either she's kind of even more cold or more, I don't know. Like, I think it's not the fault of the actress. Like, I think she played her quite well. Like, I did get the sense that she cared. 
like overall but felt unable to act on those but i i don't know i think it's more of like just the general plot like how she like i remember like when megan and her have that final confrontation she's like we were up for like hours talking and now you're just gonna discard me it was giving like a supplement replacement daughter but i was like but you didn't lean enough into that i kind of needed them to lean a bit more into one of the other so i could have gotten a clearer picture about her her as a sympathetic character or not i just kind of landed it with like quite like you're quite clueless and, and not in a way where i pity you in a way of like come on get a grip i want to talk about megan as a queer icon let's just get into it ah uh, yes she's much like the babadook in that way <laughs> how she moves you remember the babadook when you said zeba that they queer movement despite me seeing the little dance in the trailer and every bit of promotional material on Twitter and in every meme and in every reaction gif, it was still laugh out loud funny in the theater. I love her little dance. And they knew exactly what they were doing. It makes me giggle. Um, was there a real little girl under there doing choreo? Yes, there was. Her name was... So Amy Donald played Megan's body and it was voiced by Jenna Davis. Well, Amy Donald served, so I would like her to know that if she listens to this episode. I think it's really funny because I saw a meme which was basically like it was quote tweeting an interview with the writer Akela Cooper, who was talking for it was an interview for Screen Rant. And Akela was saying, I actually asked one of my friends who was a gay man about like why it resonated with a queer audience. He was saying that this setup is actually found family where this little girl has lost her family and she has to go live with her aunt. And then this doll is also brought into the situation that resonates for a lot of people in the gay community. The idea of found family. And then I saw like someone quote tweet this like a gay man and was like, I thought we liked it because she was serving cunt. She is. It's just it's it's not that deep. It's she's just a little cunty. And I feel like much like a lot of the movies we do that are about like fine and fierce women and girls, I think that is just a queer concept in and of itself is that the, you know, I feel like Megan's a little bit of like a femme fatale. She's too young to be mother, but maybe she's like fun cousin. Yeah. Someone called her Funkle, like fun gay uncle, fun gunkle or whatever. I was like, okay. So, so many people have given in-depth analyses into why the queer community likes this film, aside from just that interview with the writer. And I thought I'd read them to you because I, I was amused. First of all, Roger Ebert said, the marketing for Megan has leaned into the uncanny spectacle of the title character, a four-foot-tall cyborg with big doe eyes, a ratty wig, and the wardrobe of a closeted lesbian headmistress in a 50s melodrama. I was like okay people be reaching i think sometimes people just gotta say words they just gotta reach a word limit that was that was reaching also leave the wig alone she's a doll then there was them the magazine samantha allen basically again commented on this idea of like chosen family right sadie collins commented on what you were talking about Taya about like motherhood and a woman who doesn't want to be a mother and like how that resistance to that typical traditional nuclear family structure is quite queer I was like okay someone also commented on AI and queerness and how they're both unfamiliar uncanny territory Jennifer Culp for them as well was talking about how Megan I'll quote I'll read it here 
but she's not yet particularly concerned with acceptance from the world at large because she cherishes her position within her own nuclear family to such a degree that she would threaten her creator, Gemma, before sacrificing her charge of Katie. She is pushed to the brink of destruction before finally prioritizing herself as her own primary user. She's kind of looking at it as like queer in the sense of self-acceptance and your place in the family. And like you're having that nuclear family placement is such a priority that you sacrifice your own needs for that. All of these um, comment on like these deep, deeper meanings for it. But then Jack King for GQ, I think, hit the nail on the head more so as to why apparently beloved by the gays, which is for her empowering pop ballads, not least Sia's Titanium, delivered here in the form of Camp Lullaby. She reads bitches for filth, then kills them. She rhythmically contorts herself like many a twink in heaven on a Friday night. And then she says, and that's Megan dramatically whipping off her big frame sunglasses like a wannabe Hollywood starlet, side-eyeing her mechanical yassified peepers through 100 minutes of runtime. I think that's more why she was, like, adored. (laughs) She also, like, does this, like, the unexpected. I think it's funny that she looks so much like the little girl and, like, a little girl in general and then just, like, acts like... Not even just an adult, like it, it, much like Chucky is like a full grown man in the child's body. I feel like Megan is also like this, I guess, yeah, yassified full adult who's trapped inside this like three foot frame. It's just really funny. Yeah, I think that was kind of the element of it. Speaking of Chucky, I thought it had like the typical Chucky ending of like, you know, we killed her. Just kidding. She's not dead yet. Her part, she, she's going to have this like torso crawl towards you. You know, very, very Chucky in that ending. I enjoyed that illusion. Yeah, but Chucky can't upload himself to the cloud. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow us on TikTok at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, which is out.